If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Changing ethnic composition, which might be driven by differential birth rates and death rates, or might be driven by immigration and emigration flows, affect the politics of the area, might affect the economics of the area, might affect its international relations. It's very hard to think of many areas of life which are not, in fact, impacted by demography one way or another. That was Paul Morland on how demographic change has shaped global history. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available across the globe in print and digital formats. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, section editor at BBC History magazine. In today's episode, you'll be hearing an interview I did late last year with Dr Paul Morland. Paul is an expert in demography based at Birkbeck College, University of London. We met to discuss his debut book, The Human Tide, which explores how population has been a crucial factor in global events over the last 200 years and has helped shape the world we live in today. What exactly are you looking at when you're studying demography and why is demography an interesting way of looking at history? Demography in some ways is quite simple. Uh, and that's part of the appeal. It's really about three things. It's about the people who are being born, entering the world, the people who are dying, leaving it. And then when we're looking at certain areas of the world, the people moving in and the people moving out. So it's births, it's deaths, it's immigration, it's emigration. That essentially is demography. And why does it affect the way the world is? Um, Because the number of people 
in an area, in a country, in a region, uh, the age of that population and how those things change over time, the changing ethnic composition, which might be driven by differential birth rates and death rates or might be driven by immigration and emigration flows, all affect the politics of the area, might affect the economics of the area, might affect its international relations. It's very hard to think of many areas of life which are not, in fact, impacted by demography one way or another. What have been some of the defining trends of demographic change over the last 200 years, which is the period you're looking at here? Well, I think the first one, and that really sets the pattern, is when around 1800 you start to get a population explosion among the English and Americans, effectively. And whereas you've had population growth and movements before and, and plagues, things have happened rather randomly, what you start getting in 1800 is a pattern, which then happens across the world, where you have falling uh, death rates, uh, fertility rates stay high, so lots of people being born, not many dying, population grows, and eventually that the, the, the birth rate falls and the population stabilises. But that happens at different places at different times. So the first big explosion is among what they called the Anglo-Saxons. The Americans use this term to describe themselves and the English. And what that led to essentially was the British Empire as we recognise it. So of course the British Empire is much older than that, but Britain could never have settled and created in its own image Canada, Australia, New Zealand and, and attempted to do so in South Africa failed for demographic reasons. So the world we know today, full of English-speaking countries, is the product of that population explosion. Equally, America, we think back to 1800, it was a, a new state, uh, the, the 13 original states clinging onto the Atlantic. Uh, by the time of the Louisiana Purchase, which was a huge acquisition of territory by the United States from the French, the population of that area was 100 times the French population in the Louisiana Purchase area, a similar area. The French really had no choice. They, the, the Anglos were going to drive across this continent one way or another. And the, the second great purchase of, or great acquisition by the Americans of territory, which was the whole of the West, essentially, which sprang from the 1848 war against Mexico. Again, there were hardly any Mexicans or Spaniards there, very, very thinly populated. This roller coaster of Anglo demography was going to roll past uh, and roll on regardless. Um, that's what the Americans called Manifest Destiny. They thought perhaps it was religious, but actually it was more demographic than religious. So you asked for a couple of examples. That would be one example. Something I found very, very striking in the book was this suggestion that there has been a, a sudden acceleration in uh, demographic change and population growth. Growth in population has gone off the scale. How should we view that? Is it something to be frightened of? Is it something to be excited by? What do you think? I think the first thing is to understand why it happened, and that is essentially because you get something called modernity. Now, in the book, I do define it in a footnote. Uh, it's about urbanisation. It's about education. It's about education of women, very importantly. Um, it's about some basic public health. When you start to get some of these basic things in, you find that your death rates fall very quickly. And that's a good thing. Anyone who's got a child would want nothing for their child but good health and happiness. And that means uh, not, not dying at an early age. We want it for our own children. We should want it for other people. Um, 
equally any any man or woman who like would like the idea of being able to control his or her own fertility would want that for other people. So I think all these trends are positive and they're all uh, things we should celebrate, just as we should celebrate the fact that so many more people not only living longer but living richer and happier lives. Now, it certainly does give, give rise to... Um, issues of environment. It gives rise to issues of sustainability. At the same time, we need to recognise that uh, the population growth is now tailing off. So as I said, once you get past that point of high child mortality and life, short life expectancy, once people are living longer, once children are surviving into adulthood, eventually people will have smaller families. And we're now beginning to see this in many, many parts of the world. And so whereas the population of the world was growing at about 2% a year around 1970, now it's growing about 1% a year. And very likely by the end of the century, it will hardly be growing at all. And I think that's a huge opportunity for us. So the kind of agricultural productivity we need to keep pace with the population growth is slowing, which means that we could, if we're inventive and innovative enough, we could actually return space to nature as our population growth slows. And I think, so even from an environmental perspective, there are lots of positives there. A really interesting point that you raise as well in the book is that history isn't just one smooth process of the world getting better and better and better. How does uh, demography reveal and reflect that? Well, clearly there are lots of good things about demography, but uh, nevertheless there are some dark moments. So we can certainly see uh, in the history of the world there have been some terrible demographic incidents the Americas had their populations hugely reduced when they had the poor fortune or good fortune to be discovered by the Europeans, um, both through massacre and even more so through the spread of disease and the spread of the Europeans around the world, what had many positive effects of people. And most of the world now is living with much lower infant mortality, much longer life expectancy because of Western science and Western progress. Nevertheless, we have to recognise that terrible problems that, 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 that the arrival of Europeans often brought, uh, the slave trade, the depopulation of Africa, the Holocaust, two world wars, have, all of these can be seen from a demographic angle, and all of them uh, are tragedies. Uh, e equally, if you look at societies today, which have very young populations, that has a very positive effect in some cases. I was working in Indonesia not very long ago, and in Indonesia, you feel the positive benefits of a very young population, what they call the demographic dividend, where you have a large cohort of people in their 20s and 30s, eager, ambitious, but starting to have smaller families. So no longer supporting large numbers of children, no longer somewhat bound by very large families. And this creates huge economic um, positive vibes. On the other hand, where you have a very young population and the country is not successfully integrating into the global economy, such as the Middle East, you have a lot of uh, potential conflict and violence. It's certainly true that if Syria had the population, the age of Switzerland, things would have turned out differently. And it's also very interesting, for all the tensions in Syria, we have not seen an outbreak of civil war in Lebanon. Now, in Lebanon, we had civil war in the 1970s, when the median age was about 20. It's risen to about 30 in Lebanon now, 
it's still 20 in Syria. So you start to see the stabilising effects of populations ageing. So the bad news is that there are populations around the world that are young and are not integrated successfully in the world economy, and they're open to violence and fanaticism. The good news is generally the world is ageing and more countries are moving away from the Syrian situation towards the Swiss situation. And I think we can expect older societies to be less violent than younger ones. All this is so fascinating because it's quite intangible. It's it's very hard to establish the chicken and the egg um, and it's hard to disentangle what, what comes first. So, so talking there about having a young population, there are so many other factors at play as well as population. Is it hard as a demographer or frustrating to, to get to grips with the impact and significance? It's not possible simply to disentangle demographic factors. And I think I mentioned in the book one of the great debates is about the link between the Industrial Revolution, on the one hand, and the population explosion, on the other hand. One view may be, oh, population explosion, lots of hands ready to move into the factory. The other argument is that without the Industrial Revolution, uh, without all the exports that could generate, which in turn could import, it could, could finance imports from the wider world to feed the population. Without the massive increase in productivity, you couldn't have supported a larger population. And I think the consensus there is that whichever was primary, neither the one nor the other could have got going and really kept its uh, momentum without the other. So if you'd had the Industrial Revolution, you'd had the factories, you hadn't had a huge expansion of the population, Britain could not have become the workshop of the world. It would have been a small industrial country like Belgium, it would never have had the opportunity to have the scale to export to the entire world. Equally, if you'd had the population explosion, but not the industrialization and not the whole new economic model which we got in the 19th century, you would have ended up with that population getting knocked back, as it had done, for example, in the Middle Ages when you had the Black Death. So that's part of the answer, that these two things, uh, economics, industrialization on the one hand, demography on the other hand, um, support each other. And it's it's almost pointless to spend your time worrying about what went first. The key thing is to recognise that the two would not get very far without the other one. The other point I was going to make in terms of something like violence and youth population, it's very interesting. You have young populations which are not violent at all. A country like Bangladesh has a very young population. Still, the fertility rate's fallen enormously, but they still have a very young population. They don't have obvious political uh, or public violence uh, to the extent of, say, Syria. So you find that young populations can be violent or not. But what you almost exclusively find is once a population gets old, it ceases to be violent. So not all young populations are violent, but almost all old populations have a lower crime rate, less war, less civil war, less civil strife. When you get to a certain age, you have interests. A 20-year-old Syrian, male particularly, because we're normally talking about males when we're talking about violence, is probably not yet married, probably doesn't have an economic stake. The median Lebanese is 30. Well, there's a big difference between 20 and 30. By the age of 30 in Lebanon, you're probably married, you probably have children. The other thing that some people say is, is important, and there seems to be some evidence of it, is that as family sizes get smaller, parents value the children more more intensely. And where you have one son, you are perhaps less willing to send him off to fight than where you have four sons. My sister has four sons. She might disagree with that. But generally, 
in the culture of a society where you only have one or two sons, you're probably going to hang on to them a little more tightly than when you, where you have a large number. I think a lot of the discussion about how demography and war or conflict kind of come into play together, you think on the on the surface level, oh, it's simple, you have more people on the battlefield, you're more likely to win. But these kind of nuances that you bring out show that it's actually a lot more complex than that and there's a lot more at play. But nevertheless, the numbers you can field in a war is important and it sort of depends on the war. Um, the First World War is a very good example, and I talk about it at some length in my book. First of all, the extent to which the powers in early 20th century Europe were nervously looking over each other's shoulders at the population expansion. The English, and particularly the French, were very worried about the uh, Germans. The Germans were worried about the Russians. The Germans had a faster population growth rate at the beginning of the 20th century than either Britain or France. The Russians had a faster population growth rate than Germany. There's a famous story of Bettmann Hollweg, the German Chancellor's secretary, coming to see him in, I think, 1913. And Hollweg was in despair at the thought of this looming nightmare of Russia. A lot of that had to do with population, the sense that there were more of them, they were getting more and more... Uh, industrialised, uh, prosperous um, from a very low base and more and more of a threat to Germany. And demography was clearly a part of that. So I think demography fed into the First World War. And then if you actually look at the battles on the Western Front, less so on the Eastern Front and in, on other fronts, but on the Western Front, it was a grinding competition of putting men into the trenches. And in the end, when one group would go over the top, another group would go over the top, and they would lose pretty similar numbers. And the quality of the troops was broadly similar. And the quality of the armaments was broadly similar. In the end, numbers mattered enormously and gave the Allies an edge, which, of course, when America entered the war, that was the, the final straw as far as Germany's ability to sustain its trench warfare. And as I say in the book, it was in the cradles of the 1880s and the 1890s in many ways that the First World War was determined. Uh, when talking about the First World War, we often hear the phrases, a lost generation, um, an entire generation wiped out. But I was surprised to read, you suggest it, it didn't really have that big an impact in a demographic sense. Well, this is where I have to be careful because I don't want to sound heartless or cruel and every life is valuable and 10 lives are valuable and a hundred lives are extremely valuable and so on. But take Syria, for example. That's a very good example. Syria's population is about 20 million. Syria has lost half a million people. Now, I'm not talking about the people who've left Syria. I'm talking about the actual deaths in Syria. And of course, Syria is an absolute tragedy. But half a million in 20 is, in terms of percentage growth of population, a country like Syria, which had a very, very high population growth, could recuperate that in a very, very small period of time. Um, a country like Syria could have its population growing at 2% a year or even 3% a year. We've had Kenya growing 4% a year in the 1970s. A population of 20 million, which is growing 2% a year, is 400,000 people. So Syria could probably make up its population just in raw numbers in a very, very small period of time. Europe was growing very fast population-wise before the First World War. If you look at it by decade, the decade of 1910 to 1920, population growth in Europe slowed. And it slowed because all the forces driving it upward were countered 
by the war and by the flu. But nevertheless, those forces of, of collapsing death rates, high birth rates, already Britain was coming out of this, but the rest of the continent was going into it, created such population growth that it overcame the tragedies of the war and the flu. When you get to the 20s, the growth rate picks up a bit. And by the time you get to the 30s, the whole continent is starting to get the British disease, if you like, of um, small but, but reasonably sized families and lower mortality rates. The whole uh, of Europe was starting to calm down effectively. So the shape of the growth and the rises and the falls were certainly impacted by the war and the flu, but they weren't strong enough to completely set back population growth in that second decade of the 20th century um, in Europe as a whole. You also talk about demographic engineering. Could you explain what that involves and give us some examples of the forms that of it's course. taken over time? Well, that's the subject of my first book, and it's touched on in my second book. Demographic engineering is the way that groups in conflict use demography in order to strengthen their hand effectively. And um, I talk about hard demographic engineering and soft demographic engineering. So hard demographic engineering is changing demography through the demography, if you like, the obvious ways. Um, some examples. In Northern Ireland, the um, emigration of Catholics was very high in the 50s and 60s. And there's, there's real evidence to suggest that that was encouraged by the Protestant establishment. On the other hand, the Catholic birth rate was very high. And some research I've done suggests that that was quite a positive strategy to strengthen their numbers. Another example of hard demographic engineering would be the elevated fertility rates of both Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, Palestinians, for their high level of education and socioeconomic development, have or have had until recently a very high fertility rate compared with other Arabs or Muslims. Um, similarly, Jews in Israel have a much higher fertility rate than Jews outside Israel. And there's good evidence to suggest in both cases that that's driven to some extent by a desire to strengthen their side, their hand against the other. Obviously, Jewish immigration has been encouraged to strengthen the Jewish community in the area of, of Israel and Palestine. Um, that, so that's hard demographic engineering where you're changing. If you remember, I said births, deaths, I mean, ultimately it could even be genocide killing the other side. What I called soft demographic engineering is where you try and change the demography through non-demographic means. So an example would be getting back to Northern Ireland. When the state was founded, there was a decision to take six rather than nine counties. And I've actually been and looked at the debates within the Unionist Party as to what they were going to recommend to the Cabinet and the Cabinet papers. And in all cases, the sense was, if we are going to hold part of Ireland, we need to hold something that's demographically sustainable. Six counties is a two-to-one majority in favour of the Protestants. Nine counties, which would have incorporated Donegal, for example, uh, would not have been a sustainable, barely a sustainable Protestant majority. Births, it's not deaths, it's not moving anyone, but it's defining your state or your territory in a way that favours one group demographically rather than another. We've spoken about migration, but could you speak a bit more in depth about how migration has transformed the world that we live in? Well, of course, the first thing is to think about, um, in, in the context of my book, so the last 200 years, of course, migration has, we all came out of Africa originally, um, or so we believe, I think even that's been questioned. But um, 
within the context of the last 200 years, the first thing is the huge movement of people from the British Isles to North America, Australasia, and to an extent to South Africa. Um, there are many interesting stories within that. So, of course, there's the tragedy of the Irish famine and the massive movement of Irish people out of uh, Ireland to the United States and also to Canada and, in fact, the United Kingdom. So the world we know with this Anglo identity in huge far-flung parts of the world, which we rather take for granted, in 1800 it would have seemed quite strange. San Francisco didn't exist. Adelaide didn't exist, place Cape Town. So the, the Anglo nature of the world is in many ways the product of the population explosion in England and America in the early 19th century and the mass emigration. Uh, the migration is the other way around. So the British Isles really had very, very little immigration from the time of the Northern, Norman conquests. Uh, we're often told we're a country of immigrants, but in fact, the Huguenots, the early 20th century immigration of Jews, these were very small numbers and their respective populations would never have made up more than 1% of the total population of the country. By contrast, we've had immigrations of hundreds of thousands of people into the United Kingdom within a single 12-month period at some points in the early uh, the first years of the 21st century and and clearly for anyone living in the big cities in the United Kingdom you can see how this is massively changing the ethnic makeup of the country now the interesting question over time is to what extent will identities shift uh to what extent will people change their identity and to what extent will we live in a genuinely multi-ethnic country? And to what extent will a melting pot of sorts take hold? That I can't comment on, but I can certainly say that the movements of people into the United Kingdom, mass movements of people from Latin America into the United States, large movements of Turkish and Moroccans into parts of Germany, uh, the Netherlands, uh, France, of course, from North Africa, has completely transformed the face of Europe. And it's quite striking. If you were to have said to someone in France, for example, in 1900, that by 2018, we would have huge Algerian populations in Paris and Marseille and no French populations in Algiers, uh, they would have been astonished. This might be impossible to answer, but we've spoken about people moving, people dying, people being born. What do you think is the single biggest change that has affected um, history over the last 200 years? Of those three? Yeah. I think birth rates are the most important. Um, migrations are important, but identities change. So somebody arrives, the, the second, the third generation feels quite different, identifies differently. Um, everybody throughout the world generally wants to live as long as they can, is trying to push out um, a, as long as possible life expectancy. And, and, and as a, hu a human race has been fantastically successful in this. So I think those are kind of less interesting than this fascinating subject, which is how many children do women choose to have, where they have the choice. So the first thing is the fact that the choice has spread. Uh, we take it for granted in most of the world. And indeed, outside sub-Saharan Africa, there's barely a country where people have more than four children now. 
per woman. Even Pakistan, Afghanistan and East Timor were the three outliers and even they are coming down. So where women have a choice, where contraception is available, where there's education, where people are increasingly urbanised, they are choosing to have smaller families. That's a given. And we know that sub-Saharan Africa will get there. What's very important is the speed with which it gets there. And different countries are making progress at different rates. Ethiopia is making rapid progress. Nigeria is making rather slow progress. The question then is, how many children do people choose to have when they're sub four? And it's very interesting and very important that European women are choosing to have such small families. There's a, a what I call the uh, infertile crescent from Spain to Singapore. This is not only Europe, it's China, it's Singapore, um, it's Thailand, where we're well sub-replacement level, where women are having perhaps on average one and a half children. And this is going to have a huge impact on the world. And then what's very interesting is where even though there's modernity, women continue to have larger families or actually get to get back to Israel. Israel's a very interesting case. Jewish women in Israel were having two and a half children in the 1990s. They're now having over three. And you have orthodox communities in New York of Jews and, and in London where women have six, seven, eight children on average. And I think the decisions that once you get out of this, you move through this economic progress where you go from having women who don't have education, don't have choices, don't have access to um, contraception. You get to the point where women do have those choices. The question then is, so once you move through modernity, what does post-modernity look like? And that's a question of culture, it's a question of religion, and that I think is what's going to be terribly important and interesting in the next 50 to 60 years. So there are these big social forces at work, and so although it's a very personal decision, you can see big patterns. And women in the UK have different social forces functioning to women, say, in India or women in East Timor or women in Puerto Rico. And what's interesting is how in these different cultural, economic and social settings, people on aggregate make different choices. So there are some absolutely crazy numbers you throw out in the book. What was one of the most staggering statistics you came across? I think the incredible fall in fertility rates in recent times among people who've made very, very rapid economic and industrial progress is staggering. And the number that always haunts me in a way is the fact that in 1970, the fertility rate in China was above six, around or above six. By 1980, in 10 years, it had gone down to three. Now, you simply can't get faster falls in fertility than that. Absolutely astonishing, absolutely explicable by, even in the 1970s, the start of urbanisation, industrialization, and so on, post-Mao or during the, the last years of Mao. And then you have the one-child policy. And I really believe very, very strongly, if you look at the speed with which fertility was falling in China before the one-child policy... And if you look at the progress to lower fertility made by other countries in East Asia, by Korea, by Japan, by Taiwan, by Chinese people in Malaysia, so you're looking at people who are quite, in terms of Chinese communities, quite culturally similar, you realise that the one-child policy was completely unnecessary, extremely cruelly applied, and it will have negative consequences. That was Paul Morland. Paul's book, The Human Tide, How Population Shaped the Modern World, 
is available now, published by John Murray. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We'll be back on Monday when Cathy Newman will be discussing some of British history's most brilliant women. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. You can catch up with past episodes on historyextra.com, where you'll also find thousands of articles on all different aspects of history, as well as our special subscriber-only area, the library. 